Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. And you know what? It's an amazing day because we have a brand new book, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. It's a new book. We are reaching the stretch run. We are nearing the end. It's been an incredible year. We just finished the incredible book of Numbers of Bamidbar, and now we begin Parshas Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And I'll tell you, I'm still in Canada. I'm still in quarantine. Right now, it's after midnight. The kids are sleeping. But I must warn you that the odds of one of the kids waking up and disrupting and torpedoing this podcast are non-trivial, but that's how we do it on the Parsha Podcast. We live life on the dangerous side. We take risks. We roll the dice. We spin the wheel. We take chances, because after all, we have the Almighty on our side. We are good. Now, I must say, I mentioned last week, the Parsha's Dvarim, was always a difficult one for me to make a podcast about. But I was surprised and delighted that, thank God, this week was not so difficult. Now, you have to judge if it's any good. But thank God we are here. It's early Wednesday morning, and we are recording. But I think that the Almighty gave me a divine boost to record this week, and truthfully, Every week, thanks to you, the incredible audience of the Parsha Podcast family. Thank you for supporting us week after week, for listening to the Parsha Podcast, for sharing with a friend. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. This week, we are going to resolve a bunch of questions. So we're going to assemble a bunch of questions and going to resolve them in a way that I think you will find interesting. But also, as we do each week, we will try to extract from that idea what I think are some very valuable takeaways. That's the plan. The Parsha podcast has begun the stretch run. It's Parsha's Devarim. Let's begin. So Parsha's Devarim, and in fact, the entire book of Devarim, the entire book of Deuteronomy, is also known by another name, namely Mishnah Torah, the repetition of Torah. And of course, that raises an important question. We have the Torah, and now it's about a month and change before Moshe's passing, and he is going to repeat for us the Torah. And the first question we have to ask is, wait a minute, why is there a need for a repetition of the Torah? Are we that forgetful? Won't we have a written account of it? Why do we have to have this book? And of course, of Within the book, there are a lot of new laws, but there is an entire aspect of this book, which is the repetition of the Torah. And the question is, why? Why is there a need to repeat some ideas of the Torah that we've seen already hitherto? Question number one. Question number two, the Parsha and indeed the book begin with describing where we are. We have a very detailed account of the setting exactly where and when this speech that Moshe is going to give a month and a couple of days before his passing. And in the rebroadcast, we mentioned that Rashi explains that each one of these words that lay out the description, the setting, the context, if you will, 
of Moshe's speech is a subtle hint at criticism because Moshe is about to pass and it's time for him to levy some criticism, but he wants to do it gently. He wants to do it softly. So, so he only hints at his displeasure with the nation in the hopes that they take the message and they learn the lessons they're supposed to take away. That's the introduction. And then verse 5 we read, now it's the time, it's 40 years after the Exodus, and Moshe begins to command them according to everything that the Almighty tells him to convey to the Jewish people. And it's interesting that Rashi tells us that Moshe is hinting to the nation all of the various sins and missteps and misdeeds that the nation has done over the course of the 40 years. And that's done in a very gentle way. It's enshrouded in metaphor. It's hinted. It's not mentioned explicitly. But then if you read chapter 1, Moshe does focus on some missteps and misdeeds of the nation quite explicitly and at length. Namely, Moshe spells out the episode of the appointment of the judges and the sin of the spies. And the rest of the parasha focuses on the war and the diplomacy on the East Bank with Edom and Moab and Ammon and Sihon and Og. But the parasha, again, we have a few verses that Rashi tells us they refer to very subtle and enshrouded and veiled criticism. And then we have an entire section where Moshe rebutes, admonishes, reprimands the nation for requesting judges and for the sin of the spies. And here's the question. Question number two. Of all the things that Moshe is going to rebuke the nation explicitly about, the first thing that it mentions, the first thing that Moshe tells the nation in a speech that he mentions explicitly is that they asked for other judges and he appointed other judges. They wanted Moshe to not be the only leader, the only authority. He should appoint subordinates. He should appoint lieutenants. And the question is, wait a minute, is this even a sin? You know, if you read the account of this episode where it happened in the book of Exodus, it seems like it was a universally acclaimed efficiency system where only the most difficult questions go to Moshe, and you have leaders of 10, and leaders of 50, and leaders of 100, and leaders of 1,000, and a simple question can be resolved by a leader of 10, and a more advanced question goes one stage up, and then one stage up, and then eventually to the leaders of 1,000, and there's only 600 leaders of 1,000, so the best, the brightest, the most Incredible sages, and if none of them know, you go to Moshe. That story we read, and it didn't even appear to us as a sin. It's certainly not an egregious one. Yet when Moshe begins the story of rebuking the nation, he starts off with this, and this is the story he's going to tell in detail, this and not something else. Now, the other story that he mentions in detail is the sin of the spies. Well, that makes sense. That caused the 40-year delay. And in fact, right now, we're about to enter the land. Moshe's about to pass. We're about to finish paying up for the sin of the spies who scattered the land for 40 days. It's been 40 years. So it made sense. The 40s have come to a close to discuss it and to mention it again. But the appointment of judges 
of Moshe's lieutenants and the salience that it has over here seems quite inexplicable. Why is this story mentioned over here? Moreover, if you study the way this particular episode is presented over here, you find an interesting contradiction. So if you look at Rashi in verse 14, when the nation okayed the suggestion and they said, it's a good idea for you to have lieutenants, subordinates, it's a good idea to appoint judges aside from Moshe, Rashi explains what the criticism is. Moshe is telling the nation, you made a mistake. By asking or by agreeing to have lower judges, you made a mistake because you should have responded, Moshe, our master, who do we want to hear from? From you or from your student? We want to hear from you. That's the response the nation should have given. And now Moshe is criticizing them. He's admonishing them. He's rebuking them. He says, I know what you were really thinking. When you asked for lower judges, you actually wanted more malleable, more bribable judges. You didn't want to hear from me because you knew that I would be inflexible to any of your chicanery. You didn't want to hear from the source. You wanted to hear from the source's students because you would find them to be a bit more flexible for you. And that's the reason why you wanted lower judges. So Moshe is rebuking the nation that they acceded to the suggestion that there be other judges aside from Moshe. And the reason why is because they didn't want to hear from Moshe. Now, isn't it interesting that by the Sinai revelation, there was a similar kind of question. Who was going to convey the Ten Commandments to the nation? Was it going to be God himself, or is it going to be intermediated by Moshe? And if you remember chapter 19 of Exodus, Moshe is doing some shuttle diplomacy, running back and forth in this dialogue between the nation and God. And we read in verse 9 of chapter 19 in Exodus that Moshe conveyed to God, the nation wants to hear from you. They want to hear from the source. We want to see our king. We want to see our king. We don't want to hear through an emissary. We want to hear from God directly. So it seems like to me there's a little bit of an inconsistency here. On one hand, at Sinai, by the revelation, the nation wants to hear from the source. They don't want to hear via Moshe. They want to hear from God. And then when it comes to adjudication, they seem to favor the opposite. They do not want to hear from the source. They do not want to hear from Moshe. They want to hear from his students. So which is it? Do they want to go to the master? Or do they want the students? At Sinai, they say, we only want to hear from God. And when it comes to judges, they say, we don't want to hear from the source. We want to hear from the lower courts. That's another question we have to ponder. Now, there's an amazing midrash here that is going to be the, the fulcrum of our discussion here today. And the midrash says something fascinating. The title of the parsha and of the book is Devarim. Devarim means words. 
Why? Because the beginning of the Parsha begins, these are the words, the Devarim, the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel. Now the Midrash pulls out an amazing contrast with the very beginning of Moshe's story. In chapter 4 of Exodus, Moshe tells God, I can't go save the Jewish people. I can't go negotiate on their behalf. Why? This is chapter 4, verse 10 of Exodus. Lo ish devarim anochi. I am not a man of words. And the Midrash contrasts Moshe's beginning, if you will, and his present. It's been almost 40 years since the Exodus. And Moshe started off saying, I am not a man of devarim. I'm not a man of words. And now he begins our Parsha. And our book, these are the words of Moshe. Moshe has been transformed, says the Midrash. Before Torah, he had no words. And now he began to speak words. That's the Midrash. Beautiful contrast. Beautiful recall here by the Midrash. Moshe has finally learned how to speak. He's led the nation for 40 years, and now, says the Midrash, it's been 40 years, he is 36 days away from his passing, and finally, Moshe is a man of words. Moshe can convey the Devarim, the words, to the nation. Moshe is finally the consummate and capable leader. But wait a minute. What exactly was Moshe doing for the last 40 years? Wasn't he talking nonstop? He's already been teaching the nation all of Torah. He pulled off the Exodus, the communication with Pharaoh, the sign of revelation, all the times he had to negotiate with the nation, misbehaving, Korach, etc. Moshe has been speaking and speaking and speaking nonstop. And now, suddenly, 36 days before his passing, Says the Torah, oh, you should know, Elah Devarim. These are the words of Moshe. Moshe has finally learned how to speak. What? What's happened till now? How can the Midrash point to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1 and say, oh, you should know at this juncture of Moshe's story, he's finally remedied the problem he's had since the very beginning in the beginning, he was not an Ishtavarim. He was not a man of words. And now he says, Elahadavarim, these are the words. Oh, thank God. Moshe's finally been healed. What? Hasn't he been healed much earlier? Moreover, there is a Midrash. And this Midrash is featured actually in Rashi, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15 as well. And the Midrash states that at Sinai, by the revelation, 40 years prior to the events of our Parsha, all the maladies of the entire nation were healed, were remedied. Jewish people, says the Midrash, they were in Egypt, and they were enslaved, and they were forced to work back-breaking labor, and it was not exactly work sites governed by OSHA, and there were, in the words of the Midrash, Brits flying everywhere, and one guy broke his arm, and one guy lost his leg. And God says, in the words of the Midrash, 
how many do you have the Torah to a bunch of blemished, flawed, missing humans? So what did he do? He sent the angels and the angels, they healed all the people. There were some people that were blind and now they could see. And some people were deaf and now they can hear. And there were amputees and suddenly, miraculously, their limbs grew back. And there were lame people and now they can walk. The Midrash tells us that all the maladies were healed. You would imagine Moshe's maladies were healed too. He couldn't speak. He was not an Ishtivarim. And at Sinai, you would imagine that his medical deficiencies and disabilities and ailments and impairments went away alongside the rest of the nation's illnesses and maladies and flaws. And yet, only now, 36 days before his passing, are we told that finally he's a man of words. What is the meaning of this Midrash? So we have lots of questions. Question number one, why is there a need for the repetition of Torah? Number two, why is Moshe mentioning the appointment of the judges first as if it is a major sin? Question number three, in the appointment of the spies itself, the nation appears to be contradictory. They insist on hearing from the source from God at Sinai, yet they insist on not hearing from the source they want other judges and not Moshe. And finally, the fourth question is related to the healing of Moshe's speech. Finally, his speech was healed earlier, you would have imagined, as evidenced by the fact that everyone's disabilities were healed and also, he has been talking nonstop throughout the duration of the whole Torah. So I want to answer all these questions with one principle. We're going to suggest an idea. Here's the idea. We know Moshe had a speech impediment. And alongside all of my friends here on the Parsha podcast, this is a subject that we've been pondering already for a couple of weeks now. Now, by my count, if you look at the descriptions of Exodus and that whole back and forth conversation, dialogue with God, it seems like Moshe had four distinct speech issues. Go back to Exodus 4.10. Moshe tells God, I am not a man of words. That's one. And then he says, I have a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. So he says, number one, not a matter of words. Number two, heavy mouth. Number three, heavy tongue. And fast forward to Exodus chapter 6, verse 12. Moshe says that he has uncircumcised lips. It seems to me that Moshe had four different flaws. Of course, the Torah has no redundancies. If he uses different words, it's not just repetitions, it seems like he had a flaw in his mouth, in his lips, in his tongue, and also he was not a man of words. I would like to suggest the following. The three flaws that Moshe had, he had a heavy mouth, he had a heavy tongue, he had uncircumcised lips, whatever those mean, those are disabilities. And those indeed were cured at Sinai. However, when Moshe tells God, I am not a man of words, 
he is not referring to some sort of physical impairment. The Midrash is revealing to us that was not remedied at Sinai. It's only now, after 40 years, Moshe became a man of words. His lack of words, I'm not a man of words. That's not a condition. It's not a disability. I think there's something deeper going on over here. I think if you examine the introduction to our Parsha and to our book, you see that Moshe's speech that's happening here is a very unique speech. Parsha begins, these are the words, these are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel. This is the first time in the Torah that the term all of Israel, they were all the recipients of Moshe's message. Moshe was speaking earlier, all right, but this is the first time that his speech is to all of Israel. That is verse 1. Verse 3 gives us the time and date, the 11th month, on the first of the month, Moshe spoke to the children of Israel, and what does he say? According to everything that Hashem commanded him to them. Moshe has been speaking for a long time, but this current speech is unique in that A, the recipients were the entire nation, everyone heard, Moshe's words hit the mark and resonated with everyone. That's A. And B, Moshe said everything that God commanded him, everything that Moshe said clicked. I think what this is telling us is, that although Moshe had no disabilities for 40 years, ever since Sinai, his mouth, his tongue, his lips were fully functional, but he still remained not a man of words until Deuteronomy, a month and change before his passing. And by this definition, to be a man of words, words are not sounds, that construct accepted meanings that are enunciated verbally. In this context, it's referring to words that are messages that penetrate the heart of the recipient of those messages and change them forever. For 40 years, Moshe was not a man of words, meaning that his message did not resonate with the whole nation completely. Yes, he said words, he spoke a lot, but it was not to all of Israel. For some people, the message did not click. And it was also not all of what God told him, meaning that even for people to whom Moshe's words did move, there were gaps in the efficacy of the words. And now it's been 40 years and Moshe is finally a man of words. Now the entire nation is ready to hear his entire message. The nation is ready to hear him completely. Everyone is ready to hear everything. And what do you do when you finally have people's attention? 
their hearts are open, and you know you have the gravitas, you have the influence, you have the power to affect them, to change them, now is the time to repeat the Torah. Yes, he said it once, but not everyone heard everything. The words were not fully deployed within them. And now he became a man of words. He must repeat it. This time, all the words will penetrate all the listeners. And how does he begin his speech? What's the first thing that he mentions? He recounts the episode of the appointment of judges. In our view, this is a very minor episode. It's not a major sin, certainly not a major sin of the caliber of the golden calf or the spies. And it makes you wonder, why start here? I think this is the answer. Moshe is now, and only now, a man of words. By mentioning the appointment of the judges, Moshe is explaining to the audience and to us why he is giving the speech. Why is he repeating the Torah? This episode, where the nation says, we don't want to hear from you, we want to hear from your subordinates, this episode epitomizes why Moshe is now repeating the Torah. At the Sinai revelation, they want to hear from God, but not Moshe. Also at Sinai, after the revelation, or before the revelation, depending upon if you are with Rashi or Ramban and Parshas Yisrael, they want to hear from the lower courts, from other judges. That's who they want to hear from, and not Moshe. And Moshe is telling the nation, in the past, you wanted to avoid me. You'll hear from God, you'll hear from my juniors, anyone but Moshe. Previously, Moshe tells them, you were not receptive to my words. Some of you, of course, heard some of the messages, but you wanted others to give you law. But now, our relationship has matured. I have your complete attention. All of you are receptive to everything I'm going to say. Now I'm going to repeat Torah, this time to a fully receptive audience. Now you're ready. You're primed. You're ready to hear. You're ready to listen. All of you, now I will communicate in a way that perfectly strikes the target. You can argue that the sin of the spies is also a manifestation of the nation not being totally receptive to Moshe's words. He told them the land is good, but they weren't convinced. They wanted to send spies to scout out the land for themselves. And Fat Rashi in verse 23 tells us that Moshe is trying to convey to the nation, I tried to talk you out of it. I tried to laud the land and to have you be sold on it. I tried to persuade you to accept the land sight unseen, but you weren't buying. Moshe is perhaps conveying to the nation, I was not yet a man of words. Not all of his words were accepted by all the people, and that's why they wanted to send in the spies. Thus, these two stories are a quite fitting introduction to Moshe's speech. They show how in the past they weren't completely receptive to his words, and thus now that they are all of them 
receptive to all of his words, it warrants a complete recapitulation, a complete repetition of the Torah. Now, his words will truly stick to all of them. So we've answered all of our questions. Question number one, why is there a need to repeat the Torah? Well, now he has their full attention. Why is Moshe mentioning the appointment of the judges? Well, that embodies the way things were. And the nation previously had displayed a certain consistency in the fact that they did not want to hear from Moshe. And indeed, Moshe's speech, the ability to actually enunciate, was healed at Sinai. But being a man of words is something else entirely. I think this is a wonderful discovery. The speech that Moshe begins in our Parsha are words emanating from a man of words. Words that are going to be accepted in their entirety by all those who hear them. Not all words are created equal. The context matters. You can enunciate the precise sounds from your mouth, but only if you're like Moshe, you're a man or a woman of words, will they land. The medium is the message we are told. Here, perhaps the lesson is, the words are only as powerful as the person who utters them. When it comes from Moshe, a man of words, they're very powerful. They're transformative. And the man of words also knows how and when and in what context to deploy those words. Sometimes you have to wait until the listener is in the proper situation and circumstances and setting to accept that. The words are only as powerful as the readiness of the recipient to accept them. The situation matters, of course, as well. The time and the place of the words will determine how powerful those words are. This speech is the one that is completely accepted by all those who heard it. It's the perfect message. It comes after 40 years of Moshe leading the nation. Moshe has proven himself. They know that he has their best interests in mind. They know that he cares for them and is willing to forfeit on their behalf. They know that he will fight for them. He's going to go to war on their behalf. It comes also, I would say, after the immediate threats have been quieted, the enemies that the people were scared of are now destroyed, the nation feels secure, they're not facing any immediate threats. And in verse 4, after they smote Sichon and Og, and now the time is ripe, the person who's going to say the message is ripe, the nation is ripe. These are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel. This is a relationship 40 years in the making. For 40 years, Moshe has built up trust and credibility and a rapport with the nation. In fact, the Talmud actually says that to have a proper teacher-student relationship, you need to have 40 years of cultivation. 
And after Moshe has been working at it for 40 years, he became a full-fledged man of words. He spent 40 years building their trust, building a rapport with the nation, earning their confidence. And as any great leader does, studying their character, discovering what makes them move, what makes them tick, what motivates them, learning how to motivate every single one of the millions of Jews, knowing how to tailor your message in a way that's going to be accepted by the recipient. Moshe is finally in the situation to pull out the weapons, to pull out these powerful words to move the nation. I think there's a valuable lesson for us. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be able to move people with your words, you must study this episode very carefully. Moshe is conveying words, whereas in the past he couldn't do it. Now he could do it. Now everything is going to click with everyone. To influence an audience, you have to know them. You have to understand them. You have to know where they came from. You have to know what's important to them. They have to know your motivations, especially if you're going to challenge them. If you're going to argue for them to improve themselves, that contains a tacit criticism of their existing behavior. It must be crystal clear to them that you have their best interests in mind. They have to know for certain that you love them and you care solely for their well-being. And thus, you have to ingratiate yourself to the listener, to the recipients, to be an influence upon them. And you also have to pick your spots. You got to find the right time and the right setting for a conversation. Words are the most powerful weapons that we have to change the world, to change others. But in our partial, we're told that they must be conveyed in the proper way by the proper person to a recipient who has been primed to hear it. Yes, you can get some of the people to buy some of what you're selling. But here's the problem. What are they going to buy if they only take part of the offering? They're going to cherry pick. I'll take the palatable. I'll take the things that don't disrupt my life. But oh no, those things that make me uncomfortable. The things that destabilize my status quo, my security, my comfort, my priors. The things that are actually going to change them, those things they'll say, you know what? No, thanks. You keep that for yourself. If you want to really transform someone, you want to be a leader. You have to have some sort of tension, some sort of uncomfortable conversation, some sort of confrontation with the person you're talking to. And the greatest human communicator of all time is Moshe. And Moshe spent 40 years preparing for this day. He knows he's not ready. The nation's not ready. He's not ready. They don't have that shared history yet. He's honing his craft. He's becoming a man of words. He's developing the relationship with the nation. They're going through these ups and downs, these ebbs and flows, these great heights and these 
awful lows together. And again and again, Moshe is living up to his billing as this great leader. And after 40 years, he's ready. They're ready. The nation is ready. They have this moment in time where it's the perfect storm, the perfect confluence of factors. Now the nation is ready to hear. We have a man of words, armed, chambered, ready to go. And he is going to forever change all those who hear his message. The lesson for us, I think, is is obvious. You want to be a teacher. You want to be an influencer in the traditional sense. You want to be a leader of any type. But truthfully, all of us who use words to communicate, not all words are created equal. You have to find the right setting to say things. I always think that a parent who cares about parenting, who cares about pedagogy, who wants to raise quality children, you're constantly monitoring your child. And sometimes you see things that are a bit off and you see a problem or you see something that's potentially going to erupt into a problem. You want to nip it in the bud. And you have an instinct to right away lash out and to criticize. You can't do that. That's wrong. That's bad. You have to stop that right now. Is that the right setting? Moshe is telling us. You have to make sure they know you love them. Know you care for them. I think that you should take your kids out for lunch. Go play ball with them. Show them you love them. Take them to a ball game. Find a comfortable time where it's a very positive atmosphere, then you can speak to them in a way that they will hear and listen and learn. You have to have loads of built-up goodwill before you can rebuke or admonish or even guide and direct a child. A spouse, you want to say something. It's important. It's true. You have to learn to be a man of words. It doesn't mean because your message is correct it will have the intended consequences. Quite the contrary. You may be surprised and mystified that you'll get the opposite of what you intend. Here's the lesson. The lesson is you got to become a man of words. You have to know the recipient. You have to be able to tailor your message properly. Words are superpowers, provided they are used in the proper context. I think for us, you know, we're nearing the end of this cycle of the Torah. And of course, it's a big celebration for us. The Parsha Podcast is coming to the end of year five of the Parsha Podcast. All of us, our hearts are swelling with pride and joy. But I think as we're nearing the end of the story of the Torah, and we began the final book of the Torah, the Torah is speaking to us as well. And here we see that there is this concept of hearing part of the message, but not all of it. And I think just human nature is that we are sympathetic to hearing some of the messages because that doesn't challenge us. 
And that is what we would think, well, that's good, right? That's, that's, it's better to get something rather than nothing. Of course, that's true. But the words of the Torah are most transformative when they're taken in their entirety. Moshe finds the need to repeat all of Torah because now you'll take it all. And even the things that you accepted the first time, it's important to hear it now when you are receptive. The Torah is speaking to us as well. To take all of the messages of the Torah, the easy ones and the harder ones as well, that is the goal. To learn the Almighty's prescribed best practices to have the best and highest quality, most meaningful and most pleasurable life possible and to try to adapt to that. That is the lesson. May we all become a man of words or a woman of words and may the messages of the Torah penetrate our heart. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q, Answers and Questions. And by now, we're beginning the Book of Dvarim. You already know what this is. This is the segment at the end of the show where I ask you a question and you email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com with your answer. And here is this week's question. The fifth verse of our Parsha. After the lengthy introduction, Moshe tells the nation, Be'ever ha'yardin, on the other side of the Jordan, the land of Moab, Moshe began to explain this Torah saying. Moshe is beginning his speech after all the introductions, and he is going to explain the Torah very well. Wait a minute. Moshe is explaining the Torah very well? What has Moshe been doing up to now? Hasn't he been teaching us the Torah till now? So, of course, the easy answer is, as well, Moshe is repeating the Torah, and therefore he's going to begin his repetition, and he's going to explain it very well. That's what I would have said had I not looked into Rashi. And Rashi says something fascinating. Rashi says that Moshe began to explain the Torah in a way that he never explained it before. Moshe began to explain the Torah really well. He explained it to them in 70 languages. Moshe explained the Torah to the nation in 70 languages. Moshe gave him the Torah with subtitles. 70 different subtitles. 70 different languages. Now, according to Jewish philosophy, and this is an idea that maybe we have encountered in the past, there are 70 root nations, each one with its own language, and that is represented on the festival of Sukkot, which is read in Parshish Pinchas. We offer 70 bulls, one for each nation. Jacob, we're told, descended down to Egypt with 70 souls, one corresponding to every nation. And Moshe is teaching us Torah. In all 70 languages, in the language of every nation, that's what Rashi tells us in verse 5 of our Parsha. And here's the question. How is this useful to us? Would it be helpful if I offer the podcast in Hebrew? I could speak fairly fluently. In Yiddish? Ah, not that great. French, German, Spanish, almost nothing. In Mandarin, would you find that to be helpful? 
what is the benefit? What is the point? What's the purpose of teaching and explaining the Torah to the nation in 70 languages? That is this week's A&Q. If you have an answer, if you have a suggestion, send me an email, rabbinwishman.com, and I apologize if it takes me a while to respond to emails. Eventually, I try to get to every single one, but I'm always experimenting and exploring new ways to do it. And lately, my inbox has swelled. So I apologize if you went to response. You will get one, please God, really soon. Now, last week, we asked what I thought was a really tricky question. And the question we asked is, what is the reason why the tribes of Gad and Ruvain wanted to have their permanent portion on the east bank of the Jordan? And it seems like there's a contradiction. Chapter 32, verse 1, it tells us that the tribes of Gad and Ruvain, they had a lot of flock, and that's why they wanted a place that had a good grazing profile. And they say to Moshe, okay, we want to settle permanently on the east bank of the Jordan. If that is all you knew, then you would say, okay, well, we know the reason why they wanted to settle on the east bank of the Jordan. The problem is, if you look at the end of Deuteronomy, Moshe is giving a blessing to the tribe of Gad, and he tells them that they sought, you guys sought to settle permanently in the east bank of the Jordan because you knew that Moshe is going to be buried there. Which is it? Do they want to settle in the east bank of the Jordan because there's plentiful grazing area or because that is where Moshe was buried? I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you the story that happened. We're in Canada, as I mentioned. And on Friday night, I'm visiting with my in-laws. And my father-in-law, he's living me well, says it for Torah. A Torah thought by the Shabbos meal, Friday night, Friday night dinner. And he asks a question. And by golly, what question does he ask? He asks our question. And he gave an answer in the name of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who's the greatest living Torah sage. And I said, you know what? This is a message from God. This is the answer I'm going to share with the Parsha podcast audience. And he said as follows. If you look at the story, the episode of the tribes of Gad and Ruvain, you'll find that when it lists these two tribes, it always precedes the tribe of Gad before the tribe of Ruvain. Except for one place. In the very introduction, chapter 32, verse 1 of the book of Numbers, it says that there was a lot of flock to the tribe of Ruvain, Ruvain comes first, and to the tribe of Gad. And then verse 2, it switches it. And the tribes of Gad, Gad comes first in this verse, and the tribe of Ruvain, they came to Moshe, and they said, they made their pitch, we want to settle over here, etc., so the answer that Rabbi Kanievsky says is that in the end of Deuteronomy, Moshe is speaking not to the tribe of Reuven and the tribe of Gad. He's speaking solely to the tribe of Gad. And thus the answer, this is probably the correct answer, is that indeed there were two reasons why the nation or the tribes, these two tribes, these two tribes respectively, wanted to settle on the east bank of the Jordan. The tribe of Ruvain had a lot of flock, and that's what motivated them. And the tribe of Gad, they ultimately wanted to be the bearers of the spot 
where Moshe was buried. Incidentally, they also had a lot of flock. But the true reason why they wanted to be there was because that's where Moshe was buried. That's the answer that we heard on Friday night here. It's amazing. The worlds are colliding. The Parsha podcast world and the brick and mortar world, they came together and we have an answer. And we really appreciate my father-in-law. He gets a nice shout out for contributing to this week's Parsha podcast. I thank you for listening. I really enjoyed recording this episode now. It is 1.20 a.m. Eastern time. The kids all stayed asleep, I think. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your week. Have a fantastic and splendid and superb and wonderful and delightful and joyous and happy and harmonious Shabbos upcoming. Please send me an email, rabbojima.com. And until next week, please, God, when we come together in good health and great spirits, you take care. All the best.